Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. As a clinical pharmacist, Dr. Jason Allegro has been on the front lines treating patients with severe cases of COVID-19. Dr. Allegro joins the podcast to share his perspective and talk about the newest treatment options available for patients. Dr. Allegro is an assistant professor of clinical sciences at Roosevelt University. In addition to his teaching and advising duties, Dr. Allegro practices as an infectious disease clinical pharmacy specialist at Mount Sinai Hospital in Chicago. This episode is the last in our COVID-19 Vaccine Explained series. Our guest host today is Dr. Melissa Hogan, Dean of the College of Science, Health, and Pharmacy. I hope you'll enjoy their conversation. Welcome to our fourth session on the COVID-19 vaccine. My name is Melissa Hogan, and I am Dean at the College of Science, Health, and Pharmacy here at Roosevelt University. In each session, we've discussed a different aspect of the COVID-19 vaccine. Our first session featured Dr. Robert Sizer, and it was entitled, From Trials to Vials. Our second topic, Mythbusters, was led by Dr. Badria Nikoshevich, who addressed common myths and misconceptions about the COVID-19 vaccine. Last week, special guest Dr. Tamara Marshall discussed how the COVID-19 pandemic has disproportionately impacted communities of color. In today's session, Dr. Jason Allegra will share his experiences as an infectious disease pharmacist caring for patients through the COVID pandemic. I'm happy to announce that our speakers will join us again on May 12th for a panel discussion to provide an update on the COVID-19 vaccine. All of the sessions can be found on the Roosevelt University and Justice for All podcast on the RU website and wherever you listen to podcasts. During our live broadcast today, you'll have the opportunity to ask questions. Feel free to type them into the chat and we'll save time to address them at the end of our discussion. I'd now like to introduce today's guest. Dr. Jason Allegro is an assistant professor of clinical sciences at Roosevelt University College of Science, Health and Pharmacy. He earned his Doctor of Pharmacy degree at Midwestern University and completed two years of postgraduate residency training at the Milwaukee VA Medical Center, where he specialized in infectious diseases. In addition to teaching and advising duties at Roosevelt, Dr. Allegro practices as an infectious disease clinical pharmacy specialist and serves as pharmacist chair of the Antimicrobial Stewardship Program at Mount Sinai Hospital in Chicago. Dr. Allegro received the Roosevelt University College of Pharmacy Distinguished Faculty Award in 2018, the Mount Sinai Hospital Residency Golden Apple Award in 2019, and the Roosevelt University Mentorship Award in 2020. Dr. Allegro, thank you for joining us today. Dean Hogan, it is a pleasure to be here. Thank you for this opportunity. It is, it is an honor to be a part of this series. Hi, Mom and Dad. Love you guys. Um, so thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to talk to you today. Absolutely. Thanks, Dr. Allegro. We're going to get into a lot of details and, and talk about your experiences as a frontline essential member of the healthcare team. But before we delve into all of that, I understand you've already received your COVID-19 vaccine. So can you tell us how it felt to be part of the first wave of people getting vaccinated? Yeah, it was, it was quite the experience. And it was something that is historic in a lot of uh, senses. I know a lot of us probably saw on our social media feeds that our friends who are healthcare workers or part of the phase 1A, they got vaccinated, were posting how they got vaccinated. And you might be thinking, like, why are they posting that? It was such an exciting time for us as healthcare providers. Throughout this entire, it's, it's almost coming up on a year now, throughout this entire pandemic, it's just felt so taxing and just very weary. And when the first vaccines got approved through the emergency use authorization back in December, 
that was a historic moment. And being able to get those vaccines about a week later, that that too was something that we were very excited for because it's kind of like this bridge to hopefully somewhat of a normal life. And that's kind of what I felt when I first got my vaccines. I, I did have my own personal hesitancies about that, which we'll talk about a little bit later, but it's something that I knew there was the right decision to do for myself. And I know that for all of you out there, that that is a, a good decision to make. And we could certainly talk about all of those. So when I kind of got the vaccine and then saw my colleagues getting vaccines, I had this very cautious optimism that we are moving towards a better place in this pandemic. And as we've seen in the last month or so, our, our rates have been improving. Oh, so it sounds like it was it was a really big deal for you and your colleagues. And I know looking at the pictures, I saw pictures of you on social media and, and lots of other folks and sort of just a really big, big reason to celebrate. I'd like to understand a little bit more about your role. I don't know that everyone knows what an infectious disease pharmacist does. I think lots of people know what hospital pharmacists do or have an understanding and of, of course community pharmacists that lots of people encounter in places like CVS and Walgreens, but <clears throat> what do you do as an infectious disease pharmacist? Yeah, I, I think may, maybe some of you might be looking at my title and be like, did he make that up? Is that is that really a thing? Like, did he just happen to be in a pandemic and just called himself an, an ID pharmacist? No, we, we've actually, we're a species that has been around for, for a bit. So in kind of the normal non-pandemic times, what ID pharmacists do is we're, we're trained, and I trained to complete postgraduate training and completed a residency spe uh, specializing in infectious diseases. And to do that, you kind of get a much more significant understanding of the antimicrobials that we use in patients, no matter what infection we have. So what I do at Sinai is I work with a team of ID physicians as well as a nurse practitioner medical residents, medical students, and then, of course, I have my own residents and students that I take with me on rounds. And when we round on our ID consult patients, those are going to be our folks that are a bit more sicker than your normal run-of-the-mill urinary tract infection or pneumonia or something like that. And what I do is my role on the team is I am kind of keying in on the drugs that the patient is getting, the antibiotics that they're getting, and making sure that they are as optimized as possible. Before we had COVID-19 as a problem, the biggest issue in ID was antibiotic resistance, which you may be familiar with. And that's something that as we use antibiotics more and more, and if we are using them less appropriately, then that becomes a concern and, and bacteria get resistant to these antibiotics. And that, that's what we worry about. So a lot of my job is what's called being an antibiotic steward and making sure that we as a hospital as individual providers and as future providers with my students are informed about how to best treat folks who have infections. Other things that, that I am responsible for are like policies within the hospital to improve antibiotic use, uh, making sure that our teams and our physicians are up to date with the most recent literature, changing things with formulary if they are appropriate, things like that. And of course, as, as a faculty at Roosevelt University, teaching kind of our uh, students and um, residents at Sinai to make sure that they are informed and, and ready to be practitioners as well. So just to clarify, when you said that you have your own students and residents, are those mm -hmm. medical students or pharmacy students and residents? Yeah, so I, I have both. For ones I directly oversee are going to be our pharmacy students, of course, and then our pharmacy residents, some of whom end up going into ID, which is like there's no greater joy than that to have one of your own trainees to get into that field that, that you love so much, but also the medical residents and medical students that I work with on the ID service, it's, it's always fantastic to work with them. There's kind of this, this really, really great relationship that we have with the physicians at Sinai. And it's something that you know I, I, I don't take for granted. And it's something that we learn from them, they learn from us, and it's a, a great relationship altogether. Oh, that's really fascinating. I think that, you know, as a career path, this opens up a lot of opportunities for people who may be interested in pharmacy, but maybe want something more inpatient, more specialized. Exactly, exactly. Let's talk a little bit more about the pandemic now. So I think every person listening to this certainly has their own really specific memories of back in March 2020, when it seemed like the whole world just changed. 
Can you take us back in your memories? What was it like for yeah. you as a, as someone specializing in infectious diseases and, and first caring for these COVID patients that were being admitted? What do you remember about that? You know, it's funny when you, when you train in ID, we, we learn about stuff like this, right? So in, in the past, there, there's been SARS-CoV-1, so the SARS outbreaks in China in the early 2000s. There ends up being the MERS coronavirus in the Middle East in the early 2010s. Then Ebola, which is when I was in residency, Ebola was kind of the big thing. And then Zika, and now we have COVID-19. So that there, it, it wasn't a shock, I guess, that something, there is an emerging effect, infectious disease that has happened. But first of all, this early in my career to, to experience a pandemic, as well as to this extent, the, the greatest extent, you know, in, in hundreds, in over a hundred years, that, that was, that, that was not something that I could have ever anticipated or any of us could have ever anticipated. So my recollection back then, it was so normal looking back at it, everything felt pretty normal in February. And I was kind of keeping up to date with, you know, the WHO actually declared this a global emergency at the end of January. And then the United States, the CDC did this, I believe early February, but it wasn't until I would say March when this became really real. And this became something that this is in our neighborhood. The first few cases in Chicago have been popping up. The first few PUIs of persons under investigation came up in our hospital in the second week of March or so. And it was something that this became real. And then, you know, at, at Roosevelt, we decided to, uh, we, we made the decision to take students off of their rotations because of the concerns for spread and, and all of that. And we didn't know what was going on. It was also during that time when we discuss a new patient that comes into the hospital, we see their symptoms, we see their labs, and then the, the physicians come up with a diagnosis or at least a differential diagnosis can be A, B, C, D. When I start hearing COVID, this new COVID-19 infection becoming part of the differentials of someone who presents with a pneumonia, that's when it started becoming a bit more real for me. And then the first cases of patients who have concern for COVID-19, those that have, may have traveled to China, those that may have had some exposure presenting with a chest x-ray that looks like that. And our infectious disease doctors going into those patients' room, those became very real moments. I'm like, okay, this is, this is for real. And months and months go by, you know, we, we started to decrease the amount of folks that actually came into the hospital. I ended up doing more of phone rounds. So we did COVID rounds on all of the COVID patients in the hospital, but the ICUs were full. The medical staff was completely taxed at that point and, and very, very, very difficult in terms of we have patients that are not making it. They get they come in really sick. We don't have really any therapies come March and April and May. And it becomes really, really tough and really bad. And, and I remember one of the things, especially early on in the pandemic, that I felt and I think a lot of providers feel like this and still feel like this is no matter what and how much you're doing, it's never enough because it, you're, you're kind of against this immovable force that is just completely devastating your hospital. And you see this throughout the entire U.S. and throughout the world. And that is something that I think goes understated. If you're not seeing this in, in the hospitals, how severe and how bad this is, it, it really is taxing. And, and, you know, we get into healthcare because we want to help people. We want to heal people. We want to keep people from getting that sick. But no matter what it seemed like, especially during those early months, nothing was working because we, we don't have, we didn't have that many good treatments at that point. So I just want to delve into those first months a little sure. bit. Was there a moment when you became concerned for your personal safety, when maybe you were afraid to go to work? Certainly. I, I think that it was in, in March, and it was probably when we first saw handfuls of cases propping up in Illinois. And that was something that there, there were different protocols that were in place at Sinai. And then I started working uh, remotely around April, I believe. And yeah, that because 
part of the thing that was scary is it was unknown. We didn't really know exactly what was going on. Getting sick from COVID-19 in March 2020 is a whole different ballgame than getting sick from COVID-19 in March 2021. It's essentially a brand new disease state month or 12, 15 months ago than you know we've ever had. And how do you treat something that you don't know too much about? You give your best guess based on the evidence, based on practice, based on anecdotal experience. But now, thankfully, there have been a lot more trials that have shown certain things are effective, certain preventative measures are effective. And that is a big part of why we see some improvements with our rates and our mortality rates. So I'm going to ask you about treatments in a second. But first, can you just sort of share with us what someone with severe COVID looks like when they come into the hospital? I think, fortunately, not everyone listening has had this experience where, you know, maybe they know someone who's had mild disease, maybe they've been diagnosed, but didn't have any symptoms. But what do those Mm -hmm. severe patients look like? What how do they present? Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm glad that, that you brought that up. We, you know, for those in the audience, uh, first of all, thank you for coming. And, and I know that this pandemic has affected different people in different ways and, and over 500,000 deaths in the U.S. alone. So our, our, our heart goes out to you guys. And we're thinking of everyone that has been infected from COVID-19, whether that's yourself or a family member. Um, it's something that we take very seriously and, and kind of understanding the disease. I think we've gotten a better idea of it over the last probably the first few months of disease of of knowing about the disease and now we have a kind of a good handle on the progression so the way i like to think of how covid19 disease works there's two major phases one is the viremic phase so the virus replication phase the other one is what we call the inflammatory phase so let me kind of go step by step here first of all before so you have to get covid so there has to be transmission and transmission occurs and then there is an incubation period of about five to six days or so. So that incubation period is when the virus is starting to replicate, but you are not showing any symptoms of disease. Then you get to the viremic phase. So that's where the virus is proliferating and it's growing. And you can have some more of these mild symptoms, kind of like these mild flu-like symptoms, fatigue, cough, chills, some diarrhea can be, can be part of that. And the, the two things that are, have been kind of peculiar with this, especially when we first saw this early on, is the, the medical terms are anosmia and agusia. And those are terminologies that mean you, you lose or have an impaired sense of smell or, and you lose or have an impaired sense of taste. And that can be so that, that is something that distinguishes COVID-19 from some of the other diseases that we see. So that's kind of your viremic phase. You're having some of these symptoms, but then you may turn around and you may get better. And, and most of the time in healthy individuals with low, uh, low comorbidities in younger populations, that usually happens. People turn around and they kind of just go through that. They don't necessarily even have to get hospitalized. However, the concern then is when this progresses to the inflammatory phase. So when I say inflammatory phase, the reason that that happens is because you have so much virus around your body. I think of infections happening in three phases, infection, immune system, inflammatory response. So your infection occurs, then your immune system recognizes, hey, there's something going on here. I need to rally up the troops, get the white blood cells going, and then send them out to these different areas where there's infection. That's going to be why you're having some of these symptoms. Your white blood cell count will go up. When you get a chest x-ray of your lungs, that's why you see kind of these what they call infiltrates in there. So that is your white blood cells and your immune cells kind of getting to that area. The last part of this is going along with the immune system is your inflammatory response. And the inflammatory response normally is a good thing because that is going to allow our immune cells to get to the site of action. That's also going to allow a lot of our own antimicrobial peptides that we have in our own body to get to that area. So that is a normal thing for healing. However, when your infectious disease is so bad, that's where it becomes problematic. And then you guys may have heard of the word sepsis before, but when your inflammatory response gets kind of goes haywire, you have this dysregulated response to an infection, then you can get to something called sepsis and septic shock, where because you have so much inflammation going on, 
you're going to have multi-system organ failure. So your kidneys can shut down, your, your liver can shut down. There's something called acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, that, that can uh, be fatal and lead to death. And we also see with COVID, that's a little bit unusual when we first saw it, but now it's like, yeah, we, we know that this disease causes it. But blood clots, that is something that we saw causing a lot of coagulation issues in patients that do have severe COVID disease. So at this point, when you have this really, really bad pneumonia, which is these later stages of the inflammatory phase, that's when you're on supplemental oxygen. That's when patients have to go into the ICU and get intubated and put on mechanical ventilator. Those are the folks that we really, really worry about. And those are the folks that have a high risk of, of dying, unfortunately. Okay. So, boy, you gave us a lot of information. And I'm just going to summarize and see if, if I've got it all. So yeah. if someone gets infected, the virus replicates, don't necessarily have any symptoms, but it's growing in their body and they don't know it. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that leads to that asymptomatic spread that we, or pre-symptomatic spread that we worry mm-hmm. about with this infection. But then your immune system starts going, which is a good thing. And you might start to feel yucky. You might have fevers, you might have body aches, diarrhea, but that's your body's getting rid of the infection. Mm-hmm. For some people, and you said with comorbidities, so those are people with other disease states that yes. are important, right? So people who may not otherwise be healthy, but have some other things they're dealing with, maybe diabetes or some other conditions. Mm-hmm. In some of those people, it sort of goes off the rails a little bit. Yeah. And, and you have this like accentuated hyper response to it where the the response to it itself is what creates your your pneumonia, your difficulty breathing, sepsis, you know, this this very, very severe reaction to the infection. And that's what makes people need to be intubated, not able to breathe on their own, possibly get blood clots, which could lead to mm. heart attacks or other things. Is that right? That's a great summary of that. And and you're right. And and some people may have the misconception that it's the the virus it's, it's kind of the inflammatory response that is really causing a lot of the damage as a result of the viral infection. So I think you put it beautifully. So I've got a couple questions that follow. Number one, how does this, how is this different from the flu or is it really the same, but just can sometimes be worse? Is it basically the same kind of thing that you're treating as someone with severe flu? That, that's a really, that's a really good question. I, I think this, this comparison comes up a lot especially early on, like, oh, is this just another flu? So there's a few key differences that we know so far between COVID-19 and the flu. So one of them is there's a little bit of actually a shorter incubation with flu. So you have a uh, about a three-day incubation versus a five- to six-day incubation. So perhaps there can be pre-symptomatic spread with flu a bit more with, than, than with COVID. However, with the, the COVID issues, the, the fact that you do have longer before you present with symptoms, that actually is a bad thing because you could be asymptomatic and you could be like, oh, hey, I feel fine. Hang out with your friends one day or your family. And then the next day you feel awful versus if you had flu, it would manifest faster and be like, okay, maybe I shouldn't hang out with, with other people. Uh, the other thing too is that COVID-19 has these really distinct increases in in transmission in certain populations that we don't necessarily see with flu. So with with age groups, they you, you really see in a higher age group, we have more transmission of COVID-19. In some of these comorbidity groups, it seems to be more significant than flu. And as, as we've obviously seen, it's the, a pandemic. So the spread is much more significant at this point. The other thing too, is that we do have some worry that it's a bit hardier on kind of just transmission across like things like surfaces and, and whatnot versus the flu. And I think that is one reason why if you look at our flu rates this year, they're quite low. And part of that we kind of presume is because of all of the mask wearing and that is being a lot more effective at, at controlling flu than it is with COVID-19. The other thing, is presentation. So I mentioned the two loss of taste and loss of smell. You don't really see that with flu. That's a bit unusual. You don't really see the blood clots with flu. That's a bit unusual as well. 
But otherwise, the the flu kind of symptoms, you do see a lot of this, a lot of similar stuff. And you can get to severe respiratory pneumonias with influenza as well, like like with COVID-19. Okay, so you pointed out several differences. The pre-symptomatic period is longer, which could increase risk of people unknowingly transmitting it. Then there just seems to be more more spread, particularly in certain populations. So someone who is maybe more at risk for it will also be more likely to spread it. It lives longer on surfaces and possibly in the air than the influenza. So all of these sort of contribute to more spread. Mm -hmm. And then one thing that seems really notable is the flu doesn't typically cause these blood clots, right? So I, I know that blood clots are associated just in general with significant risk of morbidity and mortality, so sickness and death, right? So blood clots are bad things. And, yeah. and that makes COVID-19 worse than the flu. Yeah. Um, and in general, I know that, you know, every year there's sometimes tens of thousands of people who die from the flu, right? So it's not, it's not a mild disease that we can, you know, just not pay attention to. Mm-hmm. But it seems like the death rate for COVID-19 is even higher, right? Yeah, yep. So, yeah. so it's a deadlier infection that causes some overlap in symptoms and, you know, in mild cases can, can be very similar. But in fact, particularly at people at risk because of their age or their other conditions, they're at a higher risk of dying from COVID-19 if they catch it than if they get the flu. Neither right. is good. Right. Neither is good. You, you, you don't want either. So if we can prevent either, I think that's, that's great. And the, the other thing that you kind of made me think of is also complications of COVID-19 that we don't even know about yet. There, there's, you know, some reports out there of even months after getting COVID-19 that people experience brain fog and kind of like haziness and like difficulty thinking and stuff like that. that that's not stuff that really is known and, and the flu is famous for having these residual effects. So that is another thing to kind of keep in mind. I know mortality is is an important outcome, of course, but I don't think we should lose sight of what else can happen with COVID nineteen disease that we might not may not even know fully quite yet, since it's such a new disease. And what I've read is that 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 brain fog and those other symptoms that long COVID can happen even in people who are considered at low risk for death, right? Yeah. So younger people, people without those additional diseases, mm-hmm. some of them are, you know, going on for months with, with these symptoms. And those with mild disease too. You don't have to have gone to the ICU, severe, intubated, all that stuff. You could have just had like a cough and, and maybe some, you know, wheezing and fatigue and all that stuff. And then you might have this down the road, which is, it's a scary thought, but I think that that will relay the importance of getting vaccinated as well. So you mentioned how if you came in with COVID-19 in March or April, there was just not a lot that we were, that our healthcare workers were able to do for us, that, Mm -hmm. you know, it was a new disease. We didn't quite know how to treat it. That sort of alludes to the fact that things are changing, Mm -hmm. right? So what treatments are being used now? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So uh, I'll kind of break it down the, the, there's treatments we give inpatient. So when somebody gets admitted to the hospital, so they're sick enough to get to the hospital, there are some outpatient stuff as well. So n- notably, just want to bring this up, but there was an, a, a treatment that was being used a lot in the US earlier in March and in April, some of you may have heard of, about it called hydroxychloroquine. So it's a drug that is used for malaria and for lupus. It is something that there was some in vitro efficacy. So in test tubes, they they found that it may inhibit the binding of SARS-CoV-2 virus. And there was this one study that in in France that showed when you give hydroxychloroquine with azithromycin in a grand total of six people, they had an increase in virologic clearance. So they showed that if you give these two drugs, you may be able to reduce the viral load in somebody's lungs that has SARS-CoV-2. This very, very small study uh, and, and very poorly done study launched a thousand shipments of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin to a bunch of hospitals. And we started using that early on and was kind of a, a really t- 
tough thing that we had nothing else we can do. And we had this study that may be promising. So that's why we started using that. Since then, there's been much larger trials, much better trials that have shown that this is not effective and in fact, potentially harmful in patients because of cardiac issues that go along with this drug combination. So I just wanted to say that as, as an important piece in terms of the evolution of treatment for this, this disease. What do we use now currently in the hospital? So if somebody gets admitted, we do have an antiviral that is called remdesivir. This was a drug that was used early on through what's called a compassionate use system in the United States and has since been FDA approved earlier or later in the year last year. And this antiviral has been shown to be moderately, modestly effective, I would say, in patients that come in and require oxygen, but they are not so sick that they are required to be intubated in the ICU. So kind of this like moderately to severely ill patient population, remdesivir has been shown to uh, reduce the, uh, the, the amount of hospitalization. There's been some conflicting data in terms of mortality benefit with that. So that's kind of to be seen with that. So we do use remdesivir at our hospital as an antiviral. The really important and big drug that we use in patients are, are steroids, corticosteroids, specifically dexamethasone. So this is an interesting one because earlier on in the pandemic, this was a kind of a, should we use steroids in these patients? And, and, and early on, the answer was no, because we had data from flu actually that showed that in patients with severe flu, steroids didn't really do much. So presumably that would kind of be the same thing since COVID kind of is like flu at that time. That's what we knew. We probably don't need to do this. And steroids have a lot of side effects that can become problematic in patients, especially with infections. So there, there was a big trial, an ongoing trial in the United Kingdom called the recovery trial. And in June or so, they published some really, really groundbreaking data, and they found that using dexamethasone, which is a corticosteroid, actually improved mortality by a significant amount in both patients that were critically ill and intubated and patients who were not critically ill, but still sick enough to go to the hospital and need oxygen support. So you saw a reduction, I believe about 30, a little over 30%, reduction in mortality of about 30% in those critically ill patients. And this was the first well done study. It was a randomized controlled double blind study where you were able to see mortality benefit in a severe COVID infection, which up till then we had nothing. And that is, it, it, it boggles my mind to think that we didn't have anything that demonstrated that until we had those corticosteroids. So now we use those in all of our patients that have to be intubated, as well as all of our patients that have severe disease and require supplemental oxygen. And then there are some kind of fringy, very, uh, not fringy is not the best word, but like conflicting data with a monoclonal antibody called tocilizumab, as well as uh, something called convalescent plasma. So somebody who gets COVID-19 and then we take their, their blood and we get the antibodies that were formed in that blood and we administer it to a patient that has current disease. There's been kind of mixed stuff with that, some promising, mostly some just neutral. There's some recent tocilizumab studies that are a little bit promising, but it's kind of hard to say what's their place in therapy at, at this point. And then when we move to the outpatient setting, there's a, a couple of what we call antibody cocktails that have been approved through the emergency use authorization by the FDA. So I was practicing this, hopefully I get this right. Bamlanivimab and etesevimab is one that is by Eli Lilly. So we're going to call that one the Eli Lilly antibody cocktail. And then we have the Regeneron one, which is casarivimab with imdevimab. And essentially what these are, these are going to be antibodies that will target certain parts of the coronavirus. And the thing is, is these aren't, and they haven't been studied for treatment per se, but they are studied to help reduce somebody from going from mild disease to that inflammatory disease and progression. So the place in therapy for these outpatient monoclonal antibodies are gonna be for those at high risk of getting severe disease, give them an infusion outpatient, and they've been shown to reduce patients going into the hospital. So that is kind of just a different step in where we're targeting. They're not super sick yet, but we wanna prevent them from getting to that point. 
So I think those are kind of our big therapies that we have right now that we use. And then as we'll talk about in a bit, vaccines are a big preventative thing. You're listening to And Justice For All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. Okay, so you've told us a lot of, of new medications and, and new uses of medications, and it's I think it highlights just your area of expertise, right? That these, these medications are just things that you're aware of that you've used in different ways, and now we're using them for COVID. To summarize, remdesivir is an antiviral medication that is used if someone's on oxygen, but not necessarily intubated, but it, it might help. It might help them not need to be intubated. The big innovation was dexamethasone, which is an old drug, a corticosteroid that hasn't worked in the flu, but we discovered through a trial that was published in June that it actually does deal with that inflammation and help reduce mortality and really improve outcomes in patients mm -hmm. with severe disease. So kind of groundbreaking when that came to pass. And then for people who aren't quite yet that sick and we want to keep them from getting really sick, they will either get monoclonal antibodies or antibody cocktails that help their own immune system attack that infection to keep them from getting so sick. I thought I thought you were going to go for the pronunciation. I was like, absolutely I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. No, okay. Um, <laughs> Otherwise, everything, everything, exactly right. Exactly. So right. I, I, before we go into a, a few more questions about treatments in the future, Mm -hmm. I want to sort of reflect on things that I've heard from people, which is sort of the, the state of uncertainty in science and healthcare that maybe COVID didn't really introduce, but brought to the forefront, right? So mm -hmm. you talked about in the beginning how, you know, there was nothing else. So we tried hydroxychloroquine and that mm -hmm. actually might've done more harm than good. And, and now, you know, we didn't think dexamethasone would work, but now we're using it and it does work. And it sort of points to this chronic uncertainty and changing guidelines and changing recommendations that I think in some cases might sort of undermine people's faith in healthcare, right? Mm -hmm. And like, do you guys really know anything? You know, you tell us one thing and then you're changing. Like, why do these recommendations sort of morph and change over time? And is that a sign of a problem in healthcare and science? Or, you know, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's a sign of a problem. I think it's a sign. It, it is medicine it is science and this is how it kind of goes about so so the scientific method as we all learned in, in grade school is you you have a question you do some background research on the question see if you can answer it at that point if not you come up with a hypothesis and then you test it and then you test it and then you test it and you test it and you test it and then you get results and come up with an analysis based on that and at the time when we make a recommendation it's using the best available evidence up to that point. So a lot of times when guidelines are created, they have like recommendation systems in terms of how good is the evidence we're using and how strong is the, the recommendation that we are making. And if you see a lot of the stuff that we do recommend, sometimes you don't have the best quality evidence, but we need guidance from our national groups and organizations. When you have more data and you have better trials. So I mentioned that the recovery trial was a randomized double-blind controlled trial. That's something that is the kind of the, the Cadillac of, of trials. That's the, the thing you want to have your trials being, but they're expensive, they're hard to do, and it's hard to get large populations enrolled. It's hard to get the money that you need to do to do these trials. So you see a lot of retrospective studies, which is not the best trial design that we can have. There's a lot of bias that is inherent there. So in a, a result that you get from a retrospective study that is smaller, you have to take that with a grain of salt because you're not necessarily going to be able to take that information and apply it as well as you would with a larger study. So medicine changes. I, I, I know the statistics are a little bit out of date, but I read somewhere that every three months, the medical literature doubles. That's very daunting, and that can change practice very quickly. Last year, the amount of COVID-19 articles that were published were insane. If you wanted to publish an article, last year was your, or, or during this pandemic is the time to do it because so much stuff is getting published, for better or for worse. 
it's up to clinicians, it's up to researchers to parse through that data to make sure that things are legitimate, things are appropriate, because what we're doing is translating what's found in these studies into treating actual people. And we want to get the best evidence in order to do that. And again, the thing that when things change from month to month, or even it feels like day to day or week to week, it's because of the evidence that is coming out. And we're kind of subject to that because it's coming out so rapidly. It's like new evidence, analyze this to the nth degree to make sure you're not missing anything. And then how do we change and how do we do, what do we do next with that? So, so one example is hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. This was, I believe it was in April during one of our COVID calls that I like, I was kind of like, all right, guys, we need to stop using this drug. There's like more evidence that's come out. I cite XYZ trial. And we kind of had that conversation among me, some of the other pharmacists and a lot of the physicians. Yeah, we need, we need, we're going to stop using this drug. So, so there was like one particular day, we just stopped that drug in every single patient that was on it because we realized that this doesn't work and this may actually be harmful. But again, we were put in the situation and most hospitals in the U.S. were put in the situation where you didn't have anything else. So if there may be benefit with this, we'll use it. But more evidence as it comes out, that is something that we have to be open minded about. And, and as much as we would like things to be black and white in medicine, it's not. And as much as it were easy to just answer something and just be like, this is it and this will never change ever. It's not going to be like that. And it's something that, especially with COVID-19, has, has become the forefront of this. And this, this is a big thing on keeping up to date with things and making sure that you are kind of on top of your game as a clinician. So you mentioned in your treatments that the other piece that we have is the vaccine. So I want to get into, I want to make sure that we have time to get into that. Why should someone who's not high risk, why should they bother to get the vaccine, right? Like, People, people have different concerns about it. You know, they seem to be very low risk, but with anything, there's always risk, right? So if you're mm -hmm. low risk for COVID-19, why bother getting the shot? Yeah, that's a, that, that's a good question. So the way that I approach all the clinical decisions that I make and I make with my team is a risk versus benefit calculation. And for the, the, the easy answer, I guess the, the very simple answer is, the benefits of getting the vaccine are going to far outweigh the risks. I know there are concerns with some of the risks that have come up and propped up against the vaccine, but with a lot of the data that we're getting post-enrollment and post-vaccination after these new ones have been out, the Pfizer and Moderna ones have been out, they're very, very safe. That not only do they prevent you from getting COVID to a very high extent, so as, as a recap, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are close to the 94, 95% vaccine efficacy rate, meaning you have a reduction in your acquisition of that by 94, 95%. That is one part of it, but in the off chance you are part of the, the do get COVID-19 and you get vaccinated, you're also going to have less severe disease. So we talked about what happens when you have mild disease. You could probably like just have the symptoms and you'll get over the disease hopefully pretty quickly. If you have severe disease, that can be so much, so, so much that can affect you in the long term and so much that can affect you and, and possibly, you know, cause very, very bad complications. That is another thing that you're using to prevent or what you're doing to prevent when you get the vaccine. So even if you are at low risk, that is helping to the, if you fall into those categories, then you will still get that protection. The other thing too is with herd immunity and something that in patients who do get vaccinated, the reason that we have such bad rates and the reason that we're having these variants pop up is because there's so many people getting the disease. So if fewer people get the disease and you may not transmit it to someone else who may have a higher risk than you, then you're hopefully giving some protection in that manner. And I think that that is a really important fact to keep in mind. So you mentioned in the beginning how exciting it was to get the vaccine, but that you had your own personal hesitancies. So yeah. was that related to being one of the first people to get it or, or what were you concerned about? 
Yeah, actually, it wasn't too much about being on the first. That, that was exciting. So I, I, I definitely wanted to do that. So I actually had this really, you, you, were, you were there for this. I was at work for this. And I had this really unusual case of Bell's palsy back in, I think it was like three or four years ago. And I was like, what is going on? Why, why can't I move the left side of my face? And that was, that was fixed. I, I had no residual effects from that, thankfully. But if you look at the Pfizer trial, there were four cases of Bell's palsy in the Pfizer vaccine and zero in the placebo group. And that was about 38,000 people were evaluated for safety. So that is in, you know, a lot of a lot of folks. I was nervous about that because I have a history of that. And that was something that was like, am I putting myself at risk? I, I got the Pfizer vaccine. So am I putting myself at higher risk for getting this if I get this vaccine? I did a little bit more digging. I, I looked at the normal rates of Bell, Bell's palsy in the United States. It's actually about on the low end. It's about three times higher in the U.S. than what they saw in the trial. So that was kind of just an artifact of what they found, not necessarily something that was to be of concern. And that was my initial hesitancy with that. Like, am I putting myself at risk of something that I would have, you know, have have another problem with? But weighing that with what if I got COVID-19, which I am also at risk for being a healthcare provider and, you know, just just interacting and, and, and going out out of my house and all that stuff, that is at a risk too. And, and that benefit of getting the vaccine weighed outweighed the risk of me getting Bell's palsy or, or some other side effect with it. So I, I thought that that was, you know, after kind of doing a little bit more digging on my own, that was kind of a clear decision on my part. That's interesting. It's good to know. I remember seeing those reports of Bell's palsy, but it's good to know that it wasn't a real a real concern with the vaccine, but sort of a result of the way trials are done, right? Because every single side effect or every single Mm -hmm. event that happens with a patient gets recorded and then you collect all of that and then figure out if it's, if it's greater than the general population or greater than the placebo group. Mm -hmm. So since our session last week with Dr. Marshall, the J and J vaccine has been approved Johnson and Johnson. Can you talk a little bit about how this one works? We've talked extensively about the mRNA vaccines and how they work, but this one's different. So how does that work? Yeah, so very exciting. We, we, we have a new, what they call an adenovirus vector vaccine. So what that is, so adenovirus is a virus that causes the common cold. It's a very common virus. And, and specifically, they use something called ad26, which is the name of the adenovirus. So basically, Instead of having the mRNA technology, which I won't go into since we've already discussed this, we take a, uh, not we, I didn't do this, but the, the people a lot smarter than me took this inactivated adenovirus, so it's not alive or anything like that, and they attach a part of the SARS-CoV-2 virus onto it, the, the spike protein. So this antigen, this thing that's going to make our immune system react and produce antibodies, they attach it to the, the adenovirus as a vehicle. And that has been kind of the, the new, it's not even a new technology. That's kind of been the, the way that this is different than the mRNA vaccines. What's important to note is that the adenovirus vaccines and particularly AD26 has been used in previous vaccines. So there was a Ebola vaccine that was approved in 2019, I believe. And then there are some vaccines for RSV that have used this type of vector. And that is something that is important to know from a safety standpoint, and that has shown to be relatively safe in, uh, in individuals that have received this for other vaccines. So the, just the new thing is they tack on the, the, co- the SARS-CoV-2 virus onto that. So I'm going to ask you some questions really quickly that were questions around the mRNA vaccines, just to be sure that there's no confusion mm-hmm. or, you know, for, to answer concerns that people may have. So we know that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines don't have any fetal tissue. Does this vaccine have fetal tissue? It does not have fetal tissue. It does not have preservatives either. Okay. And that's good. So can this vaccine change your DNA? It does. Nope. It does not change your DNA. It is something that is similar. If you think that we know that mRNA ones don't change your DNA, this has has no chance of doing that as well. Just the way that it's built, there's no effect on host, host cell DNA. 
Okay, and there have been a lot of concerns with people about fertility with the mRNA vaccines. And I know Dr. Nikoshevich and Dr. Marshall said that they don't affect fertility. Does this one affect mm -hmm. fertility? Uh, it, it does not, not that we know of, but the thing that is very promising, I guess, is over 198,000 people have received an ad 26 vaccine, some of these older vaccines. And there has not been any signals that affect pregnant women or that affect fertility. So th this is shown to be pretty darn safe in those Ebola vaccines, those RSV vaccines. And that's kind of one thing to hang its hat on because it's not a completely novel technology. It is something that has been used before. We can go back to previous vaccines that have used this vector and it has been shown to be safe. Okay, so those are all the questions I have, just to make sure that there's no, no real dangers specifically with this vaccine that people mm -hmm. have been concerned about. Now I'm wondering, we now have three vaccines to have the mRNA technology and then this one has the viral vector technology. Are there pros and cons that people should think about when they're getting vaccinated that would make them pick one vaccine over the other? Yeah, I think this is the big question, right? And, and the thing that, uh, first of all, one thing I didn't mention about the, a couple things about the J&J &J vaccine that I didn't mention, I think that are important to note is that it's a one dose vaccine. It's been studied as a one intramuscular dose versus Pfizer and Moderna are two doses. And then the other thing is the storage is a lot easier. So you don't need that ultra, the ultra cold storage for the J&J &J vaccine. It's up to three months in the refrigerator. It's, it's stable. So between choosing those, I think it's really tough to compare them head to head because they haven't been compared head to head in a trial. So we're comparing these to placebo and we can kind of, we can only see what we can see based on those trials. The other thing is we, we also have to be kind of concerned and worried about the variants and see the efficacy on that. But the thing, the, the, the guidance I would give is the best vaccine for you is the vaccine that you can get. And I think that this is a message that a lot of the ID leaders in, in my field are saying, and that's kind of, I, I, I certainly agree with that. Getting some protection if you can get it with these vaccines. There haven't been anything that's particularly concerning with some with the J and J one. So that is that is an important thing to think about. That's good to know. And we're getting close to the top of the hour, and we do have questions that have been asked of the audience. So I'm going to pivot to those okay. questions. So one related to vaccines, as long as we're talking about those, um, Laura from. YouTube wants to know, what is the recommendation for patients with cancer? And I'm assuming these are patients actively undergoing treatment for cancer. Do you recommend they get it now or should they hold off? Yeah, that's a good question. So in patients with, especially if you have active chemotherapy, the, the concern here is that if you get the vaccine, it's not that you would stimulate COVID or anything like that. It's the concern is that the, the patient's body won't be able to mount the immune response needed to actually make antibodies to protect against it. So you're kind of not wasting the vaccine per se, but it's something that you're not getting as good of a response. So for those, you try and make sure that after chemotherapy is completed and after the immunosuppressed phase is over, that's when you can kind of talk to the doctor and say, hey, I, I do want to get my COVID-19 vaccine. Is it appropriate for me to get it at this time? And it's different for different chemotherapies and different immunosuppression. Okay. So someone undergoing cancer treatment at the moment should talk to their cancer doctor yes. about the best time to get the vaccine. So there's no, no reason not to get it related to the vaccine, but rather related mm -hmm. to their ability to respond to it. Okay. So we also have a question from Natasha on YouTube who wants to know if you have seen any of your patients getting reinfected with COVID-19. Unfortunately, uh, thank you for the question, Tasha. Unfortunately, yes. And we, we've seen folks that do fine. They, they go home. They have initially mild disease and then they, they come back, whether that is, you know, a few weeks later or, or months later. I Thankfully, I would say that's few and far between, but it does happen. And it is something that is, is very, very unfortunate because, you know, this person has probably gone through a lot already 
and now gets reinfected. So it does happen, and we have seen that. Um, Another question from Natasha on YouTube saying that they've heard that aspirin may be beneficial in COVID-19. Is, should people with COVID-19 be taking low-dose aspirin, like 81-milligram aspirin? With, with COVID-19? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm not, I'm not terribly familiar with this. I, I don't think that we recommend this to all, I could say this, we don't recommend this to all patients who have COVID-19 disease. If you are indicated for aspirin normally, that's fine, a baby aspirin normally. But just because you have COVID-19, if you don't have these other risk factors per se, then I I don't think that that would be a necessary thing that you would have to do is to start taking a baby aspirin. Okay. A couple more questions. One coming in um, from Kelly on YouTube, talking about the mask mandates and vaccines. Can you talk a little bit about, I guess, first from a personal standpoint, what's changed for you being fully vaccinated? Do you do things differently now? And then what do you think about when we'll all get back to normal? Oh man, these are some great questions. Um, what do I do differently? Uh, I, I, I've been, I mean, partly because of, of my, my teaching, but I've been going to the hospital a lot more since, since getting vaccinated. I feel a lot more comfortable doing that. And from a other, otherwise, from that standpoint, I haven't been doing anything too much differently. I, I still mask when I go out. I still... I'm very careful when I go when I come to see my parents or to see family and friends and all of that stuff. If I am in a potentially exposed area, I, there's different CDC guidance for that now. So if you're vaccinated, you don't have to quarantine if you had a potential exposure to a COVID patient. I haven't like completely gone to that, but I still kind of just just keep an eye out and, and you know quarantine if I have to based on that. But not not too much has changed quite yet. When will we get back to normal? It, it's it's hard to tell. I, I am optimistic, I think. And I, if if during, you know, if, if we are smart during the spring and especially during the summer when we kind of want to go out, but if we're still smart about this stuff, we can hopefully continue to have lower rates and be able to get to a much, much, much better place and sustain that in the next handful of months. And with, with COVID vaccines, I, I believe the last announcement was we're going to be able to get enough vaccines for everyone towards the end of May. If that happens and if we get vaccination rates high enough, then perhaps we may be able to do this and, and make a big difference in, in the summer. Well, that's hopeful. That's really optimistic. And I feel like sometimes, you know, we hear about how well the vaccines work and then we talk about how but you can't, you know, you can't change anything. You still got to wear your mask, you got to socially distance and it feels like it would be there'd be a lot greater incentive for people to get the vaccine if they felt like there it was going to help end this. And it sounds like you think it will help end this. I, I think it will. I think there are still a lot of things that we are going to have to do still, even after more and more people get vaccinated. One one big thing to keep a lookout for is the uh, ACIP, which is the Advisory Council of Immunization Practices for the CDC. They're going to actually post something sometime this week. I was hoping it was before this. I could give late breaking news to you guys, but I didn't find it yet. They're going to give different, or I don't know if it's different, but they're going to give updated guidance on social distancing and uh, mask protocols in, in those that have been vaccinated, hopefully coming out this week. I don't know what it's going to say, but I think it'll be interesting to see what they found with the data that they have. I'm going to ask you just one last question because we are just about out of time. Sharon from LinkedIn is asking about how you triage patients to determine who gets which medications when there's so many different meds and combinations. How do you how do you make those decisions for patients? That's a great question, Sharon, and that's something that is uh, part of, kind of like what we do with all the medications at our hospital. Is we have different protocols, we have guidelines, and we try and make our guidelines as similar to what national guidelines say. Also, we we discuss with other hospitals around the area, a lot of the big academic centers, I call on my colleagues, hey, what are you guys doing in these patients? And then we create our own institutional guidelines, what is best for our Sinai patients based on what we are seeing. So we take a look at internal data, we take a look at outpatient outcomes, and who is benefiting from XYZ drug. And that kind of shapes our protocol. We have these discussions with our physicians regularly, and uh, take a look at the evidence regularly. And that is something that we update to make sure that we're 
giving this and distributing it in a, a way that is most appropriate and evidence-based. So it sounds like your patients at Sinai are really getting state-of-the-art treatment that is being evaluated and re-evaluated all the time. Yeah, I mean, you know, thank you. If, if any of my colleagues are, are on this call, you guys are are the real stars out there and you, you guys save lives and, and really make a difference in people's lives. And if you are a healthcare provider out there, thank you for everything that you're doing. If you're not a healthcare provider out there, say thank you to our healthcare providers, give them a high five. Well, give them a, give them an elbow, elbow bump next time you see them. And, and thank you guys for all that you do. Absolutely. And wear your mask, right? So that, wear your mask. So that you don't need to take yes. care of as many patients. That would be great. Yeah. Yeah. And with that, Dr. Legro, we are out of time. I want to thank you so much for this discussion. This was really interesting to hear about your unique experiences, the process that you go through, the, the knowledge and training that you have to help care for COVID-19 patients, as well as all the insight you've given us on the vaccines. Thank you. It was a pleasure. It was an honor. Thank you for, for those that stayed all the way through. I know I ramble, but hopefully uh, you found some of this informative. So thank you. And this concludes our fourth discussion on the COVID-19 vaccine. Mark your calendar for Wednesday, May 12th from noon to 1 p.m. We'll bring back our guests for a panel discussion to provide new information and updates on the COVID-19 vaccine. And you can find today's session and every session in our discussion series on the RU podcast and Justice for All. Thank you for joining us. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening. <laughs>